Sometimes I feel like y'all feel obligated. Like, oh man, this poor guy, we'll get him. He's got a long walk up here. We'll give him a little clap. Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew chapter 7, as we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount. Today we are looking at verses 7 through 11, and it happens to be November 7th. So verses 7 through 11 on 11-7. I didn't even plan that, folks. It's just, just the Lord. All right, let's, uh, let's begin by prayer, though. Uh, God, your word says that the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So we confess, God, before your infinite and great and holy wisdom, uh, we are but simple people in need of understanding, and we need your word to give us light and understanding, Lord. So we pray that your word would be open to us now, that your spirit would attend to us as we study it, and that, God, uh, we would indeed find light uh, for the paths that you call us down. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this last month, we saw the release of the latest James Bond film, number 26 in the franchise, entitled No Time to Die. James Bond has better things to do with his time than die. Apparently, 26 films, so I mean, I guess he doesn't die. The guy just keeps going. I don't know if you've seen the film. I have not seen the film. I don't plan to see the film. Nevertheless, I assume we are all familiar with Bond, James Bond. Secret Service agent for the British government, the elite double O agent, meaning he holds a license to what? Kill. That's right. This means that if a mission requires him to do so, he can kill at his own discretion. James Bond, 007, license to kill. Now, None of us are a James Bond here. At least I don't think we're a James Bond. If you were a James Bond, I probably wouldn't know. Paul Selby travels a lot. Maybe he's a James Bond. <laughs> Nevertheless, many of us, most of us, carry a license of a different sort. Many of us are licensed to drive, not to kill, but to operate a passenger vehicle on public roads, turning 16. This is a massive rite of passage, getting your driver's license with all its entailing rights and responsibilities. A driver's license authorizes you to drive on the road. Taking that idea, we turn to our passage today. This is Jesus' second teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord has already taught us extensively on prayer, but he's not finished. He has something else to teach us today, and that is that we too have another license. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have a license to pray. We have the authority to come before God in heaven and make known our needs. As Jesus' disciples, we are given a license to pray with its entailing rights and responsibilities, which means we have the right of access to God and the responsibility to ask of God. So let's look at our passage this morning, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. This is the very word of the living God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? May the Lord bless now the preaching of his word. I want to begin by looking at this passage in its context. There's a lot of confusion about this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. How does Jesus get from teaching about judging others in verses 1 through 6 to praying in verses 7 through 11? It seems like he makes a jump in topics. And verse 6, the sandwich in between these two passages, is really the confounder here because Jesus goes on about uh, dogs and pearls before swine and people are what's the connection to all this? How does this all hang together? Well, let me try and unfold for you what I believe Jesus is doing here. So last week we looked at his teachings on judgment in verses 1 through 6. And there's a lot of people in our day who want to get rid of judgment. They want to ban judging, believing it would make the world a better place. But that's not the approach Jesus takes. Instead, he teaches us how to use judgment safely. Uh, In that way, it might be similar to a gun. Judgment can be used for good or for evil. And so you have to know how to use judgment safely. So verses 1 through 6, they're kind of like a safety course on judging each other. And in verses 3 through 5, the first principle Jesus teaches us in this regard is that to judge safely, you need to start with yourself. You begin by judging yourself. Your vision's blurred because you have a log stuck in your own eye. And so the point is clear from Jesus here. You can't see the forest for the tree. You literally have a tree log stuck in your eye. Your brother's got a speck in his eye. So to help him, you have to first deal with yourself. You have to first begin to judge yourself. That's the first and most important lesson in how to judge safely. But then verse 6, this weird verse, is actually the second principle Jesus teaches here on judgment. So look again at this verse with me. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I think Jesus is being kind of funny in these passages. You know, he's talking about logs in your eye. We talked about that last week and how ridiculous that was. And then now he's talking about pigs turning around and and attacking you. And I love the the humor that kind of comes out here. You can imagine the people sitting there for a long time and Jesus, he knows. And so he, he lightens it up with a little bit of humor for us. But his point here can get lost on the, like, what is he talking about? If you look in commentaries, a lot of them uh, just switch topics completely. They say, well, Jesus must be talking about preaching the gospel to people who continually reject it, you know, throw pearls before swine. And But that just doesn't make any sense with the context. He's talking about judgment, and then he does one sentence on preaching the gospel to people who don't want to hear it, and then he jumps into prayer. That doesn't make sense to me. And Jesus' sermon is very highly structured. There's a flow to it here, and so it seems like there has to be some kind of connection to this. It's 
if you make it all disconnected, it's almost like you got Matthew's notes from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's like he was going along, he was taking good notes, he had a good flow, point one, point two, point three. I got this, you know. But then he like started to daydream about lunch or something, and he's like, oh man, I can't wait till we get some fish and bread and uh, oh pearls and forced wine. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll get that one down. And man, I hope there's some potato chips today or something. And oh, prayer, okay. But and like he lost whatever was connected, and so all he got was well, we got the best that Matthew could give us. I mean, thank God for that, right? Well, again, I, no, I think actually there's more to it than this. This still all hangs together, and, and here's what I understand Jesus is teaching in verse 6. Still on the topic of judging others, Jesus is saying not only do we begin with ourselves, but we also don't force feed others. We don't cram our good judgments, we don't cram our insights, we don't cram our thoughts down the throats of other people. Pigs don't appreciate pearls, and so if we have judgments that seem right and good to us, but that other people don't have ears to hear or eyes to see, we don't force them to try to accept it. We don't keep pushing it on them. Again, what I think Jesus is saying here is, his disciples don't use coercion or manipulation. We don't force our views on people. If we see something in someone else's life that we judge, you know, is not wise, maybe is a mistake, but we judge they also don't have ears to hear, then we don't throw our pearls before pigs. We don't force our views on others and expect them to comply. And we need this in all kinds of contexts in life, right? Like in marriage. There are areas in our marriages where we, we think we discern something about our spouse. We think we discern something that they don't perceive. Uh, maybe, we, maybe you've had this experience where you, you, try and t- you try and share a little bit of that with them and they shut you down. No, that's not right. You, you misperceive me. And you're thinking like, well, I mean, maybe, but, but really, <laughs> I think I actually do perceive you pretty well here. Uh, sin's deceiving. I think maybe you're blind a little bit. So, you know, so you just kind of keep pressing. Well, I mean, have you considered? And, and they're just not having it. Well, what do you do? Do you keep pressing? Do you keep pushing? Or what about parenting, especially older children, teenagers? Right, like as they grow older, they're gonna make decisions. They're leaving the nest, so to speak, and so they make judgments for their life, and you may not agree with them. You may be thinking, eh, that's not the best choice. If I were in your situation, I'd do something different. And so you share that with them, and they disagree, they're not open to it, so what do you do? Do you keep pushing? Do you keep pressing? Do you try to make them comply? Several children are looking at their parents right now. You're not allowed to do that. Jesus says judgment begins with yourself, remember? The point, though, is in those kinds of situations, we don't force our judgments on other people. We don't try to press them into compliance. We don't try to manipulate or coerce them to comply with what we think or to agree with us. Sometimes you just don't put your pearls before swine. So what, okay, so what do we do in those situations then? What does that mean? Are we just supposed to sit back and well, I mean, okay, fine, I guess you just gotta ruin your life. Go ahead, ruin your life, see if I care. 
Is that how we're supposed to respond to it? Does Jesus just want us to be passive in response to it? No, I think that's what cues him to this next part. He says, no, you're not supposed to be passive, you're supposed to pray. You see, when you're confronted with a situation where you can't force your thoughts on someone, when you can't force your will to be done, what are you supposed to do? Do you get passive? No, you press in in prayer. That's what I think turns Jesus' thoughts then to prayer in verses 7 through 11. The shift can seem abrupt if we don't understand the connection here. It can seem like Matthew's not really making the connection, but he is. He's just helping us to see that instead of coercing people, we should pray for them. Instead of, you know, trying to become apathetic and just saying, well, I guess my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do. Actually, there is. You can bow your head and heart and hands in prayer. Instead of being in a friend and in anxiety, trying to make people try to, you know, manipulate and fix this situation. If I can only just, I'll try to argue it again and convince it and make you, instead you can just pray. We don't strong arm people and we don't surrender in the face of hard situations. Instead, as Jesus' disciples, we take up our license to pray. Two points for us this morning out of this text. The edict to pray and the encouragement to pray. Jesus begins with the edict to pray in verses 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. The verbs here are all imperatives, and they are in the present tense, meaning they are commands that we are to continually be doing. They are orders for us to ask and to keep on asking, to seek and to keep on seeking, to knock and to keep on knocking. Jesus gives us a license to pray here, and he expects us to use it. Like the badgering neighbor in Luke 11, or the persistent widow in Luke 18, we are to pray without ceasing, like Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 2. I think most Christians recognize and accept uh, the need for and the importance of prayer, at least intellectually. We, we know we need to pray. Uh, we ask people to pray for us. We say we'll pray for people, and sometimes we pray for them. But for many of us, we don't really have a vibrant prayer life. You know, sometimes when people get older, they want to retain their driver's license. They, they want to maintain, keep that freedom to drive themselves around should they want to. But in practicals, in practicality, in real life, they're actually very happy to let other people drive them. They're really actually very happy that other people can go to the store for them and bring them stuff. They want to maintain the license, the freedom, to get on the road if they want to, but they don't actually want to do that very much. They would rather other people do it for them. And I think a lot of us have a prayer life similar to that. We, we want the license to pray. We're glad Jesus gave us a license to pray. We want to be able to go before the throne of grace, should we want to. But largely, for the most part, we're really quite happy to let m other people do a lot of the praying in the church. 
In his excellent book on prayer entitled uh, Call to Spiritual Reformation, theologian D.A. Carson observes the following. The Western world is not characterized by prayer. By and large, to our unspeakable shame, even genuine Christians in the West are not characterized by prayer. Our environment loves hustle and bustle, smooth organization and powerful institutions, human self-confidence and human achievement, new opinions and novel schemes. The Church of Jesus Christ has conformed so thoroughly to this environment that it is often difficult to see how it differs in these matters from contemporary paganism. There are, of course, exceptions, but I am referring to what is characteristic. Our low spiritual ebb is directly traced to the flickering feebleness of our prayers. If you're at a low spiritual ebb in your life, Dr. Carson would come alongside you and counsel you to say, it's probably, it's likely directly traced to the flickering feebleness, feebleness of your prayers. Jesus commands us in this passage to pray, yet we pray not. We are confronted with challenges. We are confronted with something or someone we just don't know how to handle. We just don't know what to do. And so what do we do? We fret, we fume, we try to forget about it by distracting ourselves. Confronted with challenges to our faith, which are opportunities for us to grow. We do everything but persist in prayer. Jesus commands us to pray. He wants us to come boldly before the throne of grace, boldly before God to share with him our struggles, our thoughts, our desires, and our needs, and to ask God. We are to ask of God. This is the clear teaching of this passage, and we hear it over and over again from Jesus. Be startled by these passages. Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mark eleven twenty four. therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John 14, 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Can your faith take on these passages? I mean, do you know what to do with this kind of a huge promise from Jesus? John 15, seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 16, 23 and 24, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus wants us to ask and to persist in asking over and over again. Jesus says this, this is what I want you to know about prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. And once you've asked, ask again. Keep asking. 
God's not like us. He doesn't get tired of our asking. It doesn't annoy him if we keep on asking. My children have a spiritual gift of asking for things. They can ask and they can ask and they can ask and they've just begun asking. And here's the thing about it, as I have a lot of kids and somehow asking for something like spreads like wildfire among them. So one of them says, hey dad, can we watch a movie? And I'm like, well, we'll think about it. And then I turn a corner and another one pops out and it's like, dad, can we watch a movie? I I said I would think about it. And I turn a corner and another one pops out. Dad, can we watch a movie? How did you know that everyone, there's a conspiracy. They've all united to ask if they can watch movies. And so they ask and they ask and then they multiply that, you know, by five and they're all asking me all the time. There's a chorus of asking and eventually I just say, enough! with the asking. I said, I'll think about it. But God's not like me. God's not like us. He's not limited in his resources. He never gets tired of us asking. Take this to the bank, Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. This means you cannot exhaust the love of God. This means you cannot empty the well of his mercy. So keep asking. There's a persistence to our prayer. This is why Jesus follows up his command to ask with his commands to seek and to knock. Seeking implies persistence, like in the game hide and go seek. You have to keep seeking. You know, it ruins the game when you find this like really awesome hiding place and then you're hiding and you're hiding and you're hiding and you're hiding and you're waiting and you're waiting and waiting and waiting and finally you give up and you're like, okay, I'm coming out and you come out and they're like, oh, we quit looking for you like 10 minutes ago. Like, what? Like, that's what? That's not fun. Just because I had an awesome hiding place, you're going to quit. Like, no, the point of the game is to persist in seeking, right? That's hide and go seek. That's the fun in the game. And seeking implies persisting. We are to seek in our prayers as well. We are to persist in our prayers. We're supposed to go after God in them. And knocking, knocking implies the same. It implies persisting. But knocking also implies that we are asking God to open doors that are shut. It implies we are taking to God the hard things, the things that are shut off from us, the things that are beyond our reach, beyond our grasp, beyond our ability to get to them. It's the impossible things. Jesus commands us to knock on shut doors, to rattle locked gates, to bang on barred entries and see if God will not open a way for us. Now in all this, this call, this command to ask and to seek and to pray, it's helpful to note that in Christianity there is a fine line between contentment and complacency. This is something I've heard Kevin DeYoung talk about. In 1 Timothy 6, we learn about contentment. Contentment is being at peace with the fact that God has given you what you need. Being at peace that God has given you what you need. There's great gain in godliness with contentment. You have what you need. Uh, I have what I need. And so I should be content. However, as Seth alluded to, I'm about to get on a plane and fly to Florida. And when I get to Florida, I will have the thought, it would be nice to live here. Is that discontentment? Not necessarily. Not if it's not causing unrest in my heart. If it's just a, hey, it'd be nice, this would be good, I'd like that. 
That's not, discon- that's not discontentment. Discontentment is when you have an unrest in your heart, a dissatisfaction with what God's given you. This is not good, what God has given me. Contentment says, God has given me what I need, and I'm at peace with that. God has given me what I need. But complacency, complacency says, nothing's gonna change, so why bother? Complacency says, what good does it do for me to pray? Here's a verse on Zephaniah 1.12. At that time, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Spiritual complacency is a person who in their heart says, eh, the Lord isn't going to change the situation. I mean, the Lord is going to act however he acts. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I pray or not. And this is how some of us relate to God. In the face of life's challenges, we're just complacent. We're content to throw up our hands and say, what does it matter? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, so why do I need to pray? He'll do whatever he wants. We don't think those things normally. We don't say those things, but our actions make that statement. Against this, Jesus teaches us that, no, you need to pray because God uses prayer. (laughs) That's the teaching throughout Scripture. God uses prayer. Yes, he's sovereign, which means he can do whatever he wants, and he sovereignly chooses to use your prayers. There can be a kind of fatalism to a high view of God. It's like, well, if God is sovereign, then why evangelize? If God is sovereign, why go to the doctor? Why study for a test? Why go to church? If God's sovereign, he's gonna do whatever he wants. His will will be done. The answer to this is, well, this sovereign God chooses to use means. He uses the means of his word. He uses the means of doctors, of studying, of his church, and God uses the means of prayer. And thus James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. This means there are things God is postured to give us, things he's inclined to give us, but that we don't have because we do not ask. Jesus gives us a license to pray, a license to go before God and ask, and he ties to it incredible promises. Promises that are so big they cause us to doubt because they can't possibly be true. Look with me at verse 8 here. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now notice the present tense here again. This is significant. You could translate this passage, for everyone who asks is receiving. And the one who seeks is finding. Jesus' point is, as we're praying, God is already at work answering our prayer. The fulfillment may be in the future. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. It may be in the future when you actually get the fulfillment of it. But the point is, is in the present, God is already at work answering your prayer. Is he, though? I mean, do you believe that? Do you pray like that? 
We have to wrestle with this. Because I have a hard time with this. I don't, it doesn't seem like I'm receiving all I'm asking for. So something seems off. How do I reconcile that? Well, first, let's press in a little bit more to what Jesus is saying here. I mean, this whole God is working in the moment of our asking. Let's think about this a little further. Jim Fraser was a pioneer missionary. He pioneered work uh, among the Lisu people of southwestern China in the early part of the 20th century. And, and his first few years of missionary work were spent planting a lot of seeds, but he didn't see much of a harvest. He didn't see much fruit coming out of it. And he struggled with tremendous discouragement about that. Uh, until he studied some passages in Scripture on prayer, and it changed how he prayed, and consequently, he began to see a greater harvest. And here's how he explained what he learned about prayer. He said, I have come to see that in the... I'm sorry, I don't have this on the overhead. You just gotta listen. I have come to see that in the past years, I have wasted much time over praying that was not effective prayer at all. You ever feel like that? I've wasted a lot of time in praying. It did not seem very effective. Praying without faith, he says, is like trying to cut with a blunt knife. Much labor expended to little purpose. I have been impressed lately with the thought that people fail in praying the prayer of faith because, listen to his emphasis here, they do not believe God is answering, but only that he will answer their petitions. They arise from their knees feeling that God will answer sometime or another, but not that he is answering. This is not the faith that makes prayer effective. True faith glories in the present tense and does not bother about the future. I love that phrase. True faith glories in the present tense. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. Now, obviously, you can overemphasize this so that it's as if God is obligated to do your will at your bidding, that he's obligated to give you exactly what you asked for just because you asked for it. That's not right theology. We're going to get into that in just a minute. God does not answer all our prayers exactly the way we want him to, and we'll talk about that. But first, we need to wrestle with Jesus's expectation here that we are to pray with present tense faith. Faith that God is already at work answering the prayer we are praying. Remember what Hebrews faith teaches us about faith, or Hebrews 11 teaches us about faith? Faith is what? Assurance of things hoped for. Assurance of things hoped for. Future realization, present assurance. That's faith. Now this pushes us, though, towards an uncomfortable place in our prayer life. Because many of us don't pray with present tense faith. Instead, we pray these tepid, timid little prayers. Oh God, if it be your will, would you please? Now it's good to submit things to God's will, right? But usually, a lot of time, that's actually just a cover for the fact that we're not sure God's gonna answer this prayer. 
Like, it's not really an act of submission. It's not hardcore faith, but submission, God. And rather, it, instead, it's, oh, God, I, I just am not sure. So it's just, if you will. Lord, you know, if you could, if you could just find it, you know, within your great and merciful being to give me this. I'd, you know, God, we, we're asking for it. Please, Lord. <sighs> Like the prayers, like they're heartfelt, but they're not faith strong. The prayer of faith is marked by confidence. The prayer of faith is even marked by a sense of joy and a sense of excitement and a sense of passion and a sense of expectancy because our faith is in a God already at work as we pray not in him, maybe answering it sometime in the future. This is the prayer of faith that Jesus expects us to pray, the kind of faith that glories in the present tense. So why don't we pray more like that? Why don't we have more confidence in our prayers, more passion in our prayers, more expectancy that God is already at work? Why don't we pray like that? Well, here's why we don't pray like that, because we don't know if it's actually true because we doubt, or because we're confused, right? Like we're confused because we know there's these great promises about prayer, and we know Jesus says, ask and it'll be given to you, and yet we have asked for things, and we've seen other people ask for things, and God has not given exactly what we asked, and so we're confused about this, and we have doubts about this. Can this really be true? Is this really what this scripture is teaching? Seems like maybe he's saying something different. Maybe this is one of those hard theological things I don't quite understand, so I'll just chalk it up to, I don't get it, but I'll kind of generally pray. That's kind of a big category for a lot of us with prayer. I think pride also keeps us from praying with faith. Our pride keeps us from praying with confidence and passion and excitement because we may ask for something boldly and then God not give it and we feel like an idiot or a failure or a fool in front of other people. And so who wants to do that? And so no, I'd rather not. I also think our disappointment keeps us from praying with faith because we have prayed, we believe with faith before, and then we didn't get it. We think, really Jesus? Really Jesus? Because what about that child I begged you for and you didn't give? Really Jesus? Because what about that spouse that I have been seeking and haven't found? Really, Jesus, because what about that, jo that job door I was knocking on and you didn't open? Or what about that healing I prayed for but you didn't give? Or what about my kid who I've been on my knees for, begging you about, because they're in rebellion, but you have not softened their heart? And so... We struggle to pray with faith because we don't know how to reconcile the teachings of Jesus, like here in verse eight, and what looks like our unanswered prayers. Now, I don't think any prayers really go unanswered. We'll see that in a minute. But it's true that God does not always give us what we ask him. And so, how would Jesus explain to us this? How would he reconcile this for us? 
Well, he could say, you know, I've actually, I've, I've actually kind of taught you a lot about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount already. So let's just, let's review what I've already taught you, right? Like, uh, one thing I taught you was in all your prayers, you should be praying your kingdom come, Father in heaven, and your will be done. So, so ultimately, like, everything you pray needs to really be submitted to that prayer, right? So, th- so okay, well, that, that teaches that there's probably a lot of things that we might boldly ask for that we probably really shouldn't be asking for because they're not really about God's kingdom. They're, they may be a good thing, but... It, Ultimately, they're really more about my kingdom and my will and what I want. Or Jesus could, could go, turn to another place, you know, and he said, you know, I also taught you to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Or Jesus could turn to, you know, remember when I talked to you about laying up treasures in heaven and not on earth? And so a lot of your prayer requests have to do with a lot of things that you just seem like you just want your treasures here on earth. You just want the good things of this earth and you're not really trying to lay up treasures in heaven. And so, you know, you're asking for a lot of things that... This is why I think James says in James 4 again, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it, to spend it on your own passions, your own desires. So we think we're asking for good things. Like we're not asking for horrible things. We're not saying like, you know, God, you know, take out my coworker who I, you know, like we're not praying for that, right? So, so it's, it's a good thing. Like we're asking for good things. And so why wouldn't God give it? Well, because ultimately you, you want to use it for yourself. You, have, you, want to spend, you think it's a good thing for the Lord, but actually selfishly you want to spend it on your own passions. And so, I mean, he could, he could lay all that out for us, but I think still, even if Jesus did all that, I still think we wouldn't really be fully satisfied We'd say, yes, okay, God, I get that. I probably should have a filter better on some of my prayers, but you pray, everyone who asks, I mean, you teach is everyone who asks receives. And so how do I reconcile this difference between your promise there and the fact that sometimes I ask and I'm not receiving? And I think Jesus doesn't go back to all those other teachings, even though he could, because that wouldn't totally satisfy, wouldn't really satisfy our heart's desire. Which our heart's desire is to know, what is God really doing? What does God really think? How does God really care about all this? And so that's where Jesus actually goes, is he says, let me reveal to you the heart of God, and this will have the effect of encouraging you to keep on praying in faith. And so point number two, um, the longer of my points this morning here, point number two, just kidding, it's actually the shorter of my points here this morning, is the encouragement to pray. The encouragement to pray in verses nine through 11. Jesus says, or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In these verses, Jesus is teaching us that God always answers our prayers, but that he does not always give us what we ask for. Ask and it will be given to you, but it might not be what you thought it would be. Seek and you will find, but you may find something different than you thought you'd find. Knock and it will be open to you, but you might find something on the other side that you weren't expecting. 
Wait, you might think, why should I pray to a God who promises to give me something if I ask him for it, but then reserves the right to switch out what it is I actually get from him? Well, the answer is, Jesus says, because God is your father in heaven and he knows what you really need. And so ultimately you have to trust him. Here's how Jesus explains it. You parents, you actual parents here, if your kid comes to you, as Seth was illustrating this morning, and says, I'm hungry, can I have a biscuit? Or can I have an apple or something? Do you say, sure, close your eyes, hold out your hand, and then you give them a serpent? Of course not. Who would do that? A couple of you bad dads. But besides you, who would do that? No one, right? Because you love your kids and you only give them good gifts. And the same is true of God. Now, reverse that because that's really what Jesus is saying here. Parents, what if your child comes to you and says, I'm hungry, can I have a snake to eat? Some of you have kids that would do that. I'm hungry, can I have a serpent to eat? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna give them a snake to eat? Of course not. You're gonna say, no, have a biscuit. No, have a chicken nugget. No, have a frozen pizza. Because you see, sometimes, here's the deal. Sometimes things that, sometimes things that look like bread or fish to us are actually serpents. And sometimes things that look like serpents to us are actually bread or fish. Just think of the cross where Jesus was tortured to death and bore the very wrath of God. If anything looked like a serpent, the cross did. But actually it was the place of salvation. There have been things in my life that to me looked like serpents. And I've asked and I've sought and I've pounded on the door of heaven to ask God to take them away. But God, my Father in heaven, has said, actually, son, these things are bread and fish. You know not what you ask for. I've heard it said before that sometimes God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. So look, in your own life, I can't answer why God hasn't answered all of your prayers the way that you want. He hasn't given you all that you've asked for. Not in the particular. Your spouse left, your kid rebelled, your loved one died, you lost that job. I can't tell you exactly why God let that happen when you asked for the other. I'm not God. I'm just his preacher. All I can do is expound to you his will and his ways and his person that's revealed here. And I can tell you... I can tell you, you have a Father in heaven whom you can trust. You can always trust him, and he's proven that by giving you his son for you, by sending his son to die on the cross for you. Psalm 84.11 says, no good thing does he withhold. No good thing, no good thing. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. Your father will not withhold anything good from you, not even the life of his own son. Jesus got this thing of death so that you can have the bread of life. 
Jesus got the bite of the serpent so that you could have a place prepared before your enemies, a meal set before them. No matter how much something may look like a serpent to you, if God has given to you, you must trust him. It is actually bread. It is actually fish. It is actually a good thing for you. My kids love to ask me for things, and I want them to ask me for things. I've told you before, they need to have a garden of yes and a tree of no in their lives for me, and so I want them to ask me. I say yes to many things, but I do say no to something. I don't give them some things that they ask for, but that's because I am at work for their good. I am always trying to give them only good things. And yet if me and you who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Friends, this means there is not a parent on earth who wants to give good things for his or to his children, to his or her children, as much as your Father in heaven wants to give good things to you. And there has never been a parent on earth who wanted to answer his child's petitions as much as your Father in heaven wants to answer yours. So ask him, ask him freely, ask him boldly. Jesus has given you a license to pray, a right of access to God that you may ask of him as you will. Only trust that what he gives you, trust that how he answers it and he will answer it is really the good that you need. It may not be exactly what you asked for, but it's exactly what you need. You may have been asking for a serpent and he decided to give you bread and fish instead. But that should fuel our faith to say, I'm going to ask freely, I'm going to ask boldly, trusting that my God will give me what I actually need. I'll just do it in the best I can with the faith I have. So in conclusion, friends, here it is. Jesus is teaching us this about prayer, that it's not about a formula, but a father. If you pray like it's some kind of a formula, you know, I asked in Jesus' name, and so I should expect him to give me exactly what I asked for. In other words, I put the money into the vending machine, and I should get exactly what I selected out of it. If that's how you approach prayer, then you're going to be flummoxed and frustrated frequently when you pray. But if you think it's about a father, your father in heaven, who only gives good things, who withholds no good thing from you, and you pray with faith to him, then you'll know real freedom in prayer. But it's only true if you know God as Father. It's only true if you know him as a father you can trust who withholds no good thing from you. If you don't know God as your father in heaven, uh, then you have no reason to trust him. You don't actually know if he's good. If you don't know God as your father, then he's only to you God the creator who made all of us and one day will be God the judge who will judge you. And Jesus holds this out for those who believe in him, who trust in him, who believe that Jesus was sent by God the Father to save us. And all who believe in Jesus are saved and are adopted into the the family of God. When you believe in Jesus, you see him as the gift the Father in heaven has given you. And that is the assurance that he is a good God 
who knows you and loves you and withholds no good thing from you. So don't bank on these kinds of prayers if you don't know God as Father through Jesus Christ. Because it's all about trusting God as good. And only Jesus delivers him to us as good. So I pray your faith is truly in Christ and that you know God as Father. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, these, this teaching that you've given us here uh, really stretches us, Lord. It stretches our faith. It stretches us in our walk with you. It stretches uh, our trust in you, Lord. Clearly, you call us to pray more frequently than many of us pray and with more faith than many of us pray. And so we don't want to be in, in, uh, in, a, in disobedience, Lord. We want to obey and trust. We want to exercise this great right, this license to pray that you have given us. And so I pray that you would help our church to grow in prayer, to be a praying church and to pray with great confidence, with great faith, with great expectancy and joy and passion, believing that you are at work in our midst. You are at work when we pray. Maybe never more than when we pray, because you are promising that those who ask are receiving and those who seek are finding. God, you are at work in our midst when we pray. So God, stir our faith to be a praying church, God. And I pray that this week as we chew on this word, as we think about these things, as you press us more into prayer, that Lord, not any unbelief we will repent of and we will turn to you and we will trust you as good, Lord, and expect you to give good things. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let me invite you to stand now. We wanna end our service by going to the Lord's table.